Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 78. Well, we are slogging through the autopsy, aren't we? Just a little bit at a time. And the last six episodes, well, they were gripping, weren't they? Yes, I know, they were a slog too. Okay, new rule. Six episodes on any one microtopic, by definition, now constitutes a slog. And not just a wander. But I do hope that the last episode, episode 77, helped to tie it all together when it came to Gerald Custer. And now, at this juncture, part of the missing link is to hear the other side of the story, the testimony of Custer's boss, radiologist John Ebersol, MD. That's what today's episode covers. And luckily, there is audio testimony for Ebersol, too. And if nothing more, it does contain incredible revelations. I think it was the moment of truth for Dr. Ebersol. I can't wait for you to hear it right from this horse's mouth. It's one big bombshell, and it's only for a moment. So listen carefully, and you won't be disappointed. He was guarded for a good amount of the testimony, but I think his conscience got the best of him, and thank goodness it did, at just the right moment, to tell the truth about one of the most important factual disputes in American history. Why this comment has been buried for so long is really emblematic of how well the true and the whole story of what went on that night at Bethesda can still be buried under the covers after all these years. So, stay tuned. And, thankfully for you and me, there's a couple of good things happening here in the presentation of this episode. First, Ebersol's testimony is shorter than Custer's testimony, thank goodness. And second, This time, I have followed through and edited Ebersol's testimony down to a more manageable subset of pertinent comments. And third, I have also tried something new this time, a production approach for this episode that was more time-consuming and generally difficult for me to produce, but should be an easier format for you as a listener. And that is, during the audio portion of the testimony, as Ebersol is testifying, and where there are important things to point out in his testimony right at that moment, I pause his audio right there and make comment on it right then. Sometimes in that effort, I compare and contrast to things said elsewhere, making particular reference to the inconsistencies of Ebersol's testimony when compared to what we just heard from Custer. One very important fact that you should be aware of before you listen to this testimony is the timing of these depositions. When we hear Custer, it was 1997, 34 years after the assassination and almost 20 years past the expiration of the secrecy letters signed by all who attended the autopsy that night. Plenty of additional time to find more courage to tell the real truth and also more time to potentially distort it by what others may have said in the meantime. 
Not only was it 20 years past the expiration of the secrecy letters, but it was also about 20 years after Ebersol had testified. So, candidly, Custer got the luxury of going last. He would see exactly what Ebersol had said, and perhaps, as I keep saying, benefiting from the usual risk that goes along with trying to recollect events that happened some 34 years later. Custer was also testifying to a group that now, in that era, was at least incrementally more interested in finding and making available the more messy truth of the autopsy. That is the Assassination Records Review Board, or ARRB. The ARRB in 1997 was the body before which Custer appeared and testified, and it was a completely different animal than the House Select Committee on Assassinations was in 1978. In Ebersol's case, he was a reluctant participant in the investigation conducted by the HSCA, and initially declined to testify before its lawyers. Thank goodness he eventually changed his mind, and in this episode, you will hear from him as to the reason that he did. Still, the approach to the autopsy in that review by the HSCA was fatally flawed. Led by Michael Bodden, a highly respected forensic pathologist at the time, in retrospect, it was clear that there were major forces bearing down on this portion of the review. And to be fair, while it was not the first review of the autopsy that had been conducted after the Warren Commission report was published, it was the first one that had been done as part of a new and comprehensive investigation of the assassination as a whole. As we have pointed out so many times already on this podcast, issues that arose that weekend at Bethesda, the issues related to how generally the autopsy was conducted, the falsification of specific evidence that night, some of which you are now aware of through the most recent episodes, and the outright lying that seems to have taken place around a myriad of topics. Well, they are really beginning to add up. And then, add on top of it, the order of secrecy and its implications, and a myriad of other nefarious actions, and you have yourself a circumstance that was like a live third rail in 1978, the year that the HSCA conducted its review. If there was bad stuff going on in the autopsy, the only fingers that could be pointed would then be pointed right at the government, because only government personnel were involved in the autopsy. It was a politically untenable circumstance in a fight that I am sure Robert Blakey, who was chief counsel for the House Select Committee, the man who essentially headed up the HSCA investigation, it was a fight that he and others in authority at the committee level were simply not willing to take on. It might have detracted from and perhaps shattered any chance at nailing down the central theme, and that was that there was a conspiracy to kill the president. A conspiracy to cover it up would have to emerge as a separate topic at a later time. In this investigation, the implications of an autopsy cover-up on top of all of that were just too fantastic for the time and place that was 1978. So that sleeping dog would again lie still on the floor. There would be only one man on the HSCA medical forensics panel with courage enough to stand up very publicly and take the stage at that moment and dissent. Well, it was Cyril Wecht, the well-known forensic pathologist from Pittsburgh. 
David Lifton and others were deeply troubled as well with what had happened. They too, I believe, were just as outraged that the investigation didn't go deeper and further on the autopsy. You know, there is nothing much worse to point out a flaw in an investigation and then reinvestigate and then leave open the same criticisms again, or at least many criticisms that were there to begin with. And this is exactly what the HSCA did. They made progress for sure, but they stopped short of the goal line in terms of finding out the complete truth of the matter about the autopsy, which may still have very well been attainable at that moment in 1978. As I've mentioned earlier, we will get to Cyril Weck's 1978 testimony before the House Select Committee, his dissenting testimony. And with any good luck, we will hear from Cyril himself commenting directly for this podcast. Keep your fingers crossed on that one. Okay, that was a bit of a wander. And back to this episode. Who was John Ebersol? Well, let me tell you just a few things about Ebersol before we get started listening to his testimony. That may help when listening. At the time of the assassination, John Ebersol was 38 years old well into his naval career. He was a captain at the time, and he would finish as a commander. Fifteen years later, in 1978, he was a 53-year-old former Navy officer who was now a practicing radiologist in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Here is a little bit of the before and a little bit of the after about Ebersol. Dr. Ebersol was a Navy man for a good part of his life, a man who came from humble beginnings and, in many ways, personified the American dream. His father was an auto mechanic. Proud, I am sure, of his son's achievements. Father Ebersol would bring a son into the world that would do groundbreaking things related to the operation of the first two nuclear submarines in the USA's emerging nuclear navy. In addition to that, his son had a prominent position in certain events that happened as part of the Mercury space program. And so this young Dr. Ebersol already had an impressive past before he got to Bethesda. He was selected by Admiral Hyman G. Rickover to serve as medical officer aboard the U.S. Navy's first two nuclear-powered submarines, the USS Nautilus and the USS Seawolf. And he was the radiologist for NASA that screened the Mercury 7 astronauts for Project Mercury. Not a bad resume. After his time on the submarines and his time associated with the Mercury Project, Ebersol was assigned to the Bethesda Naval Medical Center, where he was completing his residency in radiology. He would eventually go on to become the Chief of Radiation Therapy, Training Director for Nuclear Medicine, and Director of the Radiation Exposure Evaluation Laboratory. He also eventually became Chief of Diagnostic Radiology and Chief of Radiology. On a personal note, he raised a big family. He and his wife had six children, five boys and a girl. All in all, he spent 24 years in the Navy before retiring in 1970 and entering into the private practice of medicine. After retirement from the Navy, Ebersol settled in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where he established and directed the John Hale Steinman Cancer Center at Lancaster General Hospital. Upon retirement from medical practice, Ebersol pursued a lifelong passion in mystery novels and crime fiction. 
He traveled to England and attended conferences at Oxford University. He became an adjunct faculty at Franklin and Marshall College, and he taught a detective fiction course in the Etc. program. He was a founding member of the Orange Street Improbables, a group of mystery enthusiasts. Like most of the JFK witnesses, there is more to this man's story and life than the 15 minutes of fame that surround their involvement in this passion play. And we must always keep in mind the considerations that people make when they assess the risk of speaking out. As we now know, Ebersol was the radiologist responsible for the x-rays taken during the autopsy of John F. Kennedy on the 22nd of November, 1963, at Bethesda Naval Medical Center. Fortuitously, perhaps, he happened to be the acting chief of radiology that night at Bethesda because the actual chief was away on official business. That gave him the dubious distinction of receiving the call and being on point that night to participate in the autopsy and by that circumstance, becoming the radiologist of record for the autopsy. So with that background, and without further ado, let's listen to episode 78 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Chief of the Radiation Therapy Section of the Department of Radiology at uh, Lancaster General Hospital, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Thank you. The primary question or the initial question of these for the medical panel will be Dr. Michael Bodden. Dr. Bodden? Dr. Ebersole, we'd like to thank you for coming down. As uh, we explained, uh, the group here represents um, the medical uh, review panel evaluating um, the medical aspects of the death of President Kennedy. Um, could you give any, uh, and we appreciate your coming down to help us in evaluating these medical aspects. Um, could you give us any recollections that you have now of the condition of the president's body when you first saw it and how you, uh, your relationship to uh, the dead body, what your function was, what your time there was. On the uh, day of the assassination, I was acting chief of radiology at the Naval Hospital Bethesda. The chief of radiology was away on official orders, and as assistant chief, I was, in fact, the acting chief. I was requested by the commanding officer about 4.30 in the afternoon to remain on board in or near the autopsy room to give any assistance that might be required in the way of uh, x-rays. I was present in the autopsy room from the time the coffin arrived from Dallas with portable x-ray equipment and two x-ray technicians. With the exception of the periods 
when I personally carried the cassettes containing x-rays to the x-ray department, which was on the fourth floor of the hospital. This is probably the first factual dispute that Custer would have with this testimony. In fact, he did indicate that he had read this and disagreed with it. Ebersalt did not, by himself, carry those cassettes containing the x-rays back to the x-ray department. Those were carried back by both Custer and Ed Reed. And I'm not surprised by that because rarely would a radiologist do that himself. That would likely be something done by the x-ray tech. With the exception of those periods, I was in the autopsy room from the time the coffin arrived to approximately 3 o'clock in the morning, at which time my services were obviously no longer necessary and I left the hospital. Uh, upon removing the body from the coffin, anterior aspect, the only things noticeable were a small irregular echomotic area above the right superorbital ridge and a neatly sutured transverse surgical wound across the lower neck. And a neatly sutured transverse surgical wound across the lower neck? Why would somebody have been suturing over the tracheotomy incision? That certainly wasn't done at Parkland. Where was it done, and why? Oh, and that first thing, a small, irregular echomotic area above the supraorbital ridge? Well, take your right index finger and place it right above your eyebrow. You can feel the edge, the ridge, right there. That's your supraorbital ridge. And they are making reference to an area that is just above that. And an ecmotic area would be one that has blood accumulating underneath the skin. A bruise. He's not describing a bullet hole yet. Just a bruise. As we turn the body in the autopsy table... There was a textbook, classical wound of entrance. Upper right back to the right of the midline, three or four centimeters to the right of the midline, just perhaps inside the medial border of the upper scapula. Again, I'd like to emphasize this was a, a textbook wound, round, smooth, purplish, no raised margins. Back of the head was missing, an irregular, messy wound. Notice how he just said, back of the head. Not top of the head, back of the head. I'm not trying to split hairs here, but to the extent that the actual damage was done in the lower rear, any shot coming from a slightly elevated position in front of the car and to the right would have traversed through the head at a slightly downward angle. And so the exit would have been lower than the entrance if the shot were coming from the front. At that point, <clears throat> we had a wound of entrance, i.e. the back wound, and no known wound of exit. So prior to starting the autopsy, we were asked to x-ray the body to determine this, the position, the presence of a bullet. We took several x-rays, skull, chest, trunk. These were taken in the autopsy room on the autopsy table. They were hand-carried by me in their cassettes to what we designate as Tower 4, the fourth floor of the hospital. All right, once again, and I don't want to belabor this point, but I don't think he carried any of the 
cassettes containing the x-rays anywhere. Handled by a darkroom technician, given back to me and taken back, hand-carried by me to the autopsy room. Uh, the initial films showed the usual metallic fragments in the skull, but no evidence of a slug, a bullet. Uh, this was a little bit disconcerting. We were asked by the Secret Service agents present to repeat the films and did so. Once again, uh, there was no evidence of a bullet. For those of you, I assume you're familiar with portable x-ray equipment. It's not the type of equipment that gives us fine diagnostic detail, but it's certainly very adequate in picking up any heavy metallic fragment. It can stand out like a sore thumb, either intact or shattered. The autopsy proceeded, and at this point I'm simply an observer. Uh, Dr. Humes probing the wound of entrance, found it to extend uh, perhaps over the apex of the right lung, bruising the pleura, and appeared to go toward the, or near the midline of the lower neck. I think he may have forgotten one minor detail, that the very moment that probing began by Humes, and it's very well documented in the Seibert and O'Neill report, that in fact, they thought that the wound did not transverse the entire body. In fact, it was a shallow wound. And he's making no reference to that at all here. And I think that's telling. I believe by 10 or 10.30, approximately, a communication had been established with Dallas, and it was learned that there had been a wound of exit in the lower neck that had been surgically repaired. Well... He's just dropped a bombshell, as you know. Humes has maintained throughout this whole process that he didn't know that there was a wound of entry or exit in the front of the president's neck. At least he didn't know until after the autopsy was over. Well, this statement now by Ebersol is one more that clearly contradicts statements by Humes. But oh, what a web we weave. Now, Ebersol is indicating that the communications from Parkland are also articulating that they actually surgically repaired the tracheotomy wound prior to the president leaving Parkland. To my knowledge, there is no such evidence that that occurred. So whether or not this is something he was told or whether or not this is something he heard firsthand, well, either way, it's probably not true. I don't know if this was pre-mortem or post-mortem. But at that point, the confusion, as far as we were concerned, stopped. Uh, the only function that I had was later in the evening, early in the morning, perhaps about 12.30, a fragment, a large fragment of the uh, occipital bone was received from Dallas. And at Dr. Fank's request, I x-rayed this. These were the last x-rays I took. The x-rays were taken by the Secret Service that evening. I did not see them again. And I must be a little bit vague on this point, but sometime within a month of the assassination, I received a call from the White House medical staff, a member of the White House medical staff, Captain uh, James Young. Dr. Young asked me if I could review the skull x-rays 
for the purpose of getting some measurements for a sculptor. I said, yes, I thought that was feasible. <coughs> I was driven to the White House annex where I did see the skull films and took certain measurements, and in taking those measurements may well have drawn lines on the film. Wow, the web just keeps getting bigger and bigger. He drew the lines a month later while doing this work to develop a bust of the president. Well, that's a wildly divergent story versus what was articulated by Custer in his sworn testimony. Custer said that night during the autopsy that Ebersol placed those x-rays on the film viewer and began to make pencil marks on them, and he was directed by members of the gallery to stop. All I can say here is I don't think this is a problem with one or even two vague recollection of memories. These are two distinctly different stories that each tells with equal ferocity. So which one is telling the truth? I think that's really the only question that we have to answer here. In summary, I'd like to emphasize one thing. These films, these x-rays, were taken solely for the purpose of, of, of uh, finding what at that time was thought to be a bullet that had entered the body and not exited. If we were looking for fine bone detail, the type of diagnostic exquisite detail that you want in life, we would have taken the pictures in the x-ray department, made the films there. But we felt that the portable x-ray equipment was adequate for the purpose, i.e. locating the metallic fragment. In examining those films, such fine things were obvious as a myelogram dye from a previous myelogram, the trace is still present in the spinal canal. The mentioned and related explanation of this myelogram is actually significant. Custer mentioned it too, but unfortunately his explanation was not expansive enough, I think, for everyone to really understand the significance of it. If you recall, Custer told us that one of the reasons that he was able to conclude that one of the individuals in the gallery that night, one of those individuals who was directing the autopsy, was the president's personal physician. And how he was able to conclude that is that Admiral Berkeley had previous knowledge of the myelogram that had taken place. In this current set of x-rays, the contrast dye or contrast material that was present during that myelogram was still visible. And when Dr. Berkeley mentioned it, it was clear that he must have been President Kennedy's personal physician in order to have such knowledge. I did not testify at the Warren Commission. I have not testified or given uh, witness to any official body except this one. I have been contacted by the usual sensation seekers and authors during the years, but have not uh, made any comment except on one occasion when a fellow radiologist at the Rocky Mountain uh, annual meeting, Radiology Society annual meeting in Denver, made the statement that a radiologist was not present at the time of the autopsy. This is Dr. Morgan from Johns Hopkins. In writing to Dr. Morgan, I stated that I certainly was present and gave him my qualifications. I did not receive an answer. Thank you, uh, Dr. Ebersole. A couple of questions uh, relative to what you brought up. We have with us the x-rays in the archives, numbered 1 to 14. Do you remember, including the x-rays of the fragments that were brought up later, 
Uh, do you recall if that, those are the numbers of x-rays that you uh, uh, had uh, placed in the archives? Yes. When you placed the x-rays in the archives, were you satisfied that they were each and every x-ray that you took? Is there any possibility there are additional x-rays that uh, you did not see when you put the, the x-rays in the archives? No, I, I feel those are the, those are the numbers we took uh, on which there were images. And why, did you take x-rays in which there weren't images? Or? There may have, it may have been possible that at the most one film had no image on and was destroyed. Okay, but, but there were no x-rays other than the ones no, x-rays uh, other than that were put into the archives. This is a good place to make a point, and it's also a good place to make a correction. When we talked in the last episode about the number of missing x-rays, well, I missed one. There was a total of three x-rays which Custer identified that he took that were now no longer in the archives. The official number of x-rays are now 14. And if you'll recall, Custer said somewhere between 14 and 20 were actually taken. And by the end of his testimony, he had summarized that actually there were three missing x-rays and not two. And I'm sorry because I mentioned only two in the last episode. The three missing x-rays include the two tangentials that we talked about already, and there was another AP cervical, which showed bullet fragments at C3, C4. That one was also missing. If you add the three missing x-rays to the 14 that are in the archives, that's 17 in total, and that falls squarely within the range of total x-rays, which Custer said were taken that night. Um... Do you recall, when, when you took the x-rays, uh, in the sequence of taking x-rays, and you took the x-rays of the, uh, initially before any uh, incision was made in the body. That's correct. You took essentially, you took the head, chest, abdomen, extremities? Right. The order, the order was skull first, then chest, then uh, trunk. I see. When uh, Colonel Fink came in, these had already been taken? Yes. And repeated ones. Now, when you say repeated, uh, were x-rays repeated after the autopsy had started? Do you have an independent recollection of that? They were, the, second ser- the second group of x-rays were taken either before the incision was made or very shortly thereafter. Maybe your memory will be refreshed as we go through the right. x-rays. Um, some comment had been made in the past about total body x-rays uh, being taken and the fact that the hands and, and feet aren't on these x-rays. Right. Uh, do you, uh, re- did you take x-rays of the hands, feet, purpose? No, we did not. We, don't. we thought the films we took were adequate for the, uh, the purpose for which they were taken. Um, when the body, when you first saw the body on the x-ray table, apart from yourself, and uh, doctors Humes and Boswell, were there any other physicians uh, who in any way participated or uh, officially observed the autopsy? No. At that time, to the best of my knowledge, only myself, Dr. Boswell, Dr. Humes were present. Dr. Fink was to arrive later. Dr. Fink arrived later. Now, um, you mentioned that the tracheostomy was sutured. 
when there, you first saw the body, the tracheostomy. There was a sutured wound, a transverse wound at the base of the neck. Do you remember any other sutured wounds? Uh, uh, no, I do not. Sutured uh, um, incisions that might have been... No. Um, do you know how Dr. Fink came to the autopsy uh, room? I believe Dr. Hume's... Uh, it's my first. I believe Dr. Hume's contacted him uh, by after getting to the after uh, things had started and asked him to, to meet it. And um, do you know, uh, or did you discuss, or do you have personal knowledge at the time of doing the examination whether there were any strictures as to the extent of the autopsy, or was was the manner in which the autopsy done? Uh, purely a decision made by the physicians there. To the best of my knowledge, there were absolutely no restrictions, and it was uh, Dr. Hume's, Hume's decision as to uh, the extent of the autopsy. I'm not a mind reader, but listening to that and listening to his intonation, the way his answer just sort of tailed off at the end, I don't know. There's something about it that's quite telling to me. Again, as a juror, I think the question is, is he telling the truth? This is certainly in conflict with what we heard from Custer. Um, when the body arrived and was taken out of the casket, uh, do you recall with the plastic bag around the head? Or, uh... I don't recall. I was there when it was open. I don't recall a plastic bag. No. Now, what's interesting about this is that this testimony took place before Custer's which means that somebody else had already talked about that plastic bag. So, is Custer telling the truth, or did he co-opt somebody else's story? Which one? This is somewhat fantastic, I know. So, again, as a juror, you have to make the call. Did you have any um, impressions or concerns about soft tissue, possible soft tissue movements in taking the x-rays? of the scalp tissues? No. No, I personally held the uh, head for the skull position and, and kept my hands in it. Okay. Um, I'm going to show you some of the x-rays and perhaps we go over one by one, but does anybody have any comments, questions? Uh, <coughs> you know, for the record, um, at that time that you did this, what was your position uh, at Bethesda officially? I was a commander of Michael Corey, United States Navy, assistant chief of radiology, and head of the radiation therapy nuclear medicine division. When had you gone to med? When where had you gone to medical school? University of Indiana Medical School, graduated in 1948. And then you've been in the military for how long? Uh, I entered the naval service July 1949. And your position was uh, was as you described at the time of the uh, shooting of President Kennedy. From 1949 to 1959, I was associated with nuclear submarines uh, and uh, had special training in nuclear physics, Duke University, North Ridge, Tennessee. I commissioned and served on USS Nautilus and USS Seawolf, the first two nuclear submarines. <coughs> when Seawolf was decommissioned in 1959, I started a residency in general radiology at Bethesda. I completed that residency in July 1963. At that time, I became chief of the radiation therapy and nuclear medicine sections. 
In December 1963, I was board certified by the American Board of Radiology at the Cincinnati examination. Now, one other point before we get to the x-rays, which are on the view box. Um, some uh, mention has been made to our committee about um, Dr. Yoon's uh, asking uh, who's in charge at the time of the autopsy, when he started the autopsy, to the, the persons in the autopsy room. Do you recall that specifically or anything like that? Um, comment that might have been made of that nature. No, I don't. I don't recall, Doctor, about that specific. Any specific uh, question, Doctor Humes might well have directed that to the uh, many people who were milling around the autopsy room, who were Secret Service agents, White House staff. Well, what do you make of his response here? He doesn't recall. Although, Dr. Humes may very well have made that sort of inquiry to the individuals who were there that night, milling around, you know, Secret Service agents, folks from the White House. I don't want to color anyone's view of this, but based on everything I've heard him say and how he answers questions, I think this happened. I think Humes did ask that question. But there was no... Uh, I clear uh, impression that you had that somebody in that room was uh, um, in any way giving orders as to how the autopsy should be done. Now let's pivot to another topic. Do you remember back during the last episode when Custer described that small metallic device that he used as a personal identifier it was one of the ways he was able to assure that the x-rays he was looking at were actually ones that he had taken back in 1963. You may also recall at the time that Ebersol became aware that he was using it during the course of taking those x-rays, and he ordered him to stop. Well, now you get to hear Ebersol answer the question as to whether or not he can identify that item on the x-ray. It's been a long time since he's seen those x-rays. I'll give him that. Maybe he did forget. Perhaps uh, will measuring device or radio opaque. It's a metallic uh, object, but I, I can't identify it. No, it looks as if it could be used as a measuring device, yes. Okay. Uh, perhaps. Uh, mm -hmm. Dr. Uh, did you state the x ray? Uh, x rays one and two. And it's also present in x ray number three. All right, next item. Do you remember Custer describing that moment at which the emulsion on the one x-ray, the skull x-ray, was burned right through, and Ebersol did it, and it just happened to be right at a spot where they saw fragments? Well, in this next little clip, you get to hear them ask Ebersol how this might have happened, and you get to hear Ebersol's response. I'm looking on uh, film number one. Uh, you see there are two um, <coughs> the artifact points. Could you describe those and uh, indicate what you think they're due to? These are, what they're due to. These are raised, blistered, uh, rounded areas on the X-ray film uh, due to overheating the emulsion and probably coming about from placing it on or near a what we call a hot light. Imagine a photoflood bulb and this place too close to it. Associated with these two areas, there are wrinkling in the uh, film base, which also occurs when they are closely applied to a too hot a 
source. Do you have any knowledge as to when and how they occurred? No, I don't. They may well have occurred that night. I may have been the guilty party here as we were, uh, we were looking at these under bright light that night as well as uh, under standard view boxes. Okay, if that wasn't uncomfortable enough, let's go back one more time and ask him about those pencil lines on the skull x-rays. Now, um, number one, uh, do you recognize the three skull x-rays, one, two, and three, as the ones you've ta- you had taken? When I last saw these, I personally fixed some metal tape to them. Was that on these at any time? Yeah, the red metal tape, numbered one, two, and three. Now, these are the films. These are the films that you took yeah. and that you put into the archives later. Right. Now, in fact, on number two, there are some lines, some um, penciled lines. Mm-hmm. Are these the lines you, uh, I think the other side, uh, that you refer to as having? Yes. On number two specifically, this is a uh, line that I made. Two uh, Identify definitely the lower line running from the nasion and ASION to the occipital area. There is a second line at an angle to that first one, uh, which uh, I also made. The attempt here was to get a line from the high point of the forehead back to the occipital. And that was for purposes of, uh, as you understood it, a sculpture's request? As I understood, this was requested, this was information that might be of use to a sculptor in making a bust. You know, I don't always try to save the best for last, but sometimes it does just work out that way. And what you're going to hear next really is the best, and I have saved it for the end, the end of this episode, anyway. What you are about to hear is so fantastic that it requires no introduction. But what it does require you to do is to listen very carefully. This was a man who was faced with one of those important questions. This was also a man who hadn't told the entire truth throughout the course of this testimony. And yet, in many ways, how he answers this next question is more than a bit of redemption. I think for Ebersaw, this really was his moment of truth. So let's listen to it. Do you, uh, on uh, examination of these films, uh, have an opinion as to where uh, the gunshot wound of entrance was in the head, radiologically? Films. I guess all can be said from the films at this time. 
Thank you for listening to episode 78 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. (laughs) 